listening to KKUP Cupertino, 91.5 FM in the Bay Area and beyond on kkup.org. The show you're listening to is Out of Our Minds, one of the longest running poetry radio shows in America. And I just want to warn everyone that the winter storms out here have provided plenty of drama to our days and broadcast. So if the show goes to static during the next hour, my apologies. Um, I'll air Mark's show next week if we have to. Tonight's guest is Mark Ziegens, author of The Underwater Typewriter Out of, well, it's out, it's out, 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 of Pelicanesis Press and Ready for Your Eyes. So that's the book that you want to read with your eyes. But tonight is about the ears. So we're going to go right into Mark's um, interview and then I'm going to break in a couple times with some music. So let's go. Let's go. yourself um, to start off well, and, and what you're doing and what you're working on? Well, I'm a poet and um, I kind of started out um, in spoken word, did a couple of spoken word albums and I've migrated more toward work on the page in the last few years. Um, so I've done a little bit of both. And many, year, many years ago, um, um, a bunch of my poems were gathered into a play and, and produced on stage in Boston. So, really? Yeah, yeah. Whoa. What's the, what's the show called? Or the, what's the, the play was called Mum and Shaw, and that was a long, long time ago. But, but it was uh, on... What do you mean a long, long time like ago? Like 20 plus years. Oh, well, you know. 
<laughs> we can have revivals. What is it? What was the show called again? Mum, M-U-M, and Shaw, S-H-A-H. And Shaw. Okay, great. Um, no, that sounds cool. I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that you that you went you go from spoken word into written, uh, written poetry. Um, because I think for me personally, I work the opposite way, written to spoken. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of poets tend to work that way. So what you reverse engineered it? I mean, is that what happens in the spoken world? The spoken word in world. In the spoken word world, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think for me, it's it's from a couple of things. One is the way I process words is mm-hmm. primarily auditory. Mm-hmm. I hear them as sounds and I hear them in space. And when I was younger, I used to do sound engineering and record mixing and things like that. And so I have a sense of words as almost like ephemeral sculpture. Mm-hmm. They're things that go out and they're in decay. And, and so for me, it came, I, I, I think, from that. And then also I'm kind of deeply rooted in the blues and talking blues and things like that. And so for me, poetry came out of music. And yeah, that's that's really that's really cool um, to think about. I my spoken my, my desire to have poetry exist in the in in the heard world is comes from sort of the oral tradition of my family. Mm-hmm. So that's you know all the scary stories and the things that happen in my culture <laughs> that my mom would tell me and so on and so forth that's i think why i want to become a storyteller and poetry seemed to be the easiest way for me so how about you i mean what led you to spoken word other than i mean i you explained the music yeah well well i think you know it really started with that i remember as a kid hearing um tom waits do do riffs off his Nighthawks at the Diner album. And I just love, especially Emotional Weather Report. I just love that stuff. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I saw him at the Bridge School Benefit. It was the first time I'd ever heard of him. And I was like, wait, this is so cool. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's outrageous. <laughs> and then someone's like, no one sees Tom Waits. And I was like, well, I did. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Sorry about that choppy transition. Here's some Tom Waits for you.
<laughs> Mind blowing. So so yeah, I mean I mean that that was definitely cool. And then I heard things like the last poets and um, and there's a long tradition of sort of spoken and semi-spoken music and recitations and things like that in the American tradition. And so for me that was kind of natural. Um, and and as I said, I really have always been interested in the idea of how a word hangs in air and how it decays and what it means to speak a word to someone directly um, and to get a poem across doing that. And it's interesting, you know, there was a sort of a, a tradition for a while in American academic poetry, mm. which is that the poem ought to stand alone on the page. Yes. It ought to be readable, observable, and um, decipherable on the page. And if it requires anything different than that, somehow it's less. <laughs> And I think that premise is profoundly flawed. And it's like it, new criticism, I think that's what it is, right? Something of new criticism. Yeah, it started. It's, it kind of started back with that. Um, but the idea is the poem is this sort of pristine thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's problematic for several reasons. One is it denies the history of poetry, which came from the oral tradition. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I know as a fact, both as someone who writes poems and, and, and helps people become better poets, that when you voice lines out loud, the meaning deepens, your ability to see into relations between sound, rhythm, meaning, pacing, salience in the line and so forth go, goes up tremendously. So your control of what goes onto the page, unless it's purely abstract work, is dramatically improved by sounding it as you read. And, and it's foolish to think that simply because we may bring vocal inflection to a reading in the room that we're somehow limiting meanings the poem could have. We may be opening up meanings that never otherwise would have been considered. And so when we voice a poem, we both limit and expand what it is in the moment, and we do something real and alive and human with it. And I, I love that aliveness. Yeah, I mean, that's very interesting that you say that because I think that, that when you use the terminology spoken word poet, a lot of a lot of connotations come to mind usually for me it's it's like young sort of uh raw it's kind of remind reminiscent of like the hip-hop scene or something mm -hmm. like that and but you're coming from a, a different space inside of the spoken word yeah and i'm trying to very much as i work with people and i perform broaden people's sense of what spoken word is, what it can be, mm -hmm. what its range is. And within that, yeah, there's an opportunity for people to be young, to be raw, to put their their feelings out there, to talk about political oppression in a way that, that needs to be given voice mm -hmm. in a very personal, specific way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's wonderful. And, and I am in love with hip-hop. My, yeah. my son raps and... <laughs> <laughs> it's it's amazing stuff. In fact, I think when I was in college, I had one of the first, if not the first show that was playing rap music on a college show when I was a kid. And, wow. <laughs> and so I've been connected with that for a long time. But, 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 but that's a hugely important, probably the most important element of spoken word right now. But it's a far more extensive and varied tradition. And opening that up is something that's very important to me. Well, yeah, and I mean, if you talk, if you if you go back, like you said, the sort of American, the American culture and the American relationship with poetry. I mean, if if you're going to say that Walt Whitman is the father of American poetry, then how can you say you don't want to hear it out loud? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean it just it's like, duh. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Um, I, I, I very much, um, you know, I read through your book last night and I had it, I had it for a couple of weeks and I was thumbing through it over and over again. Are there, is, is there anything about this book that you want to talk about specifically? I mean, obviously, um, or read. Oh, sure. Well, read, yeah, I could do a little read. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you a little bit about the book and then maybe I'll read a couple of things. Yeah. So, so one thing that's important, it's called the underwater typewriter and it's from Pelicanesis Press. And the title poem is set in Big Sur. Mm -hmm. And since this is a radio show coming out of, of mm. Cupertino, yep. it's worth noting that, that the title poem, The Underwater Typewriter, is, is, is set it's off. It's local. It's local, yeah. It's set <laughs> off Point Lobos. Um, 
So, so I think that's really important. Um, in conceiving the book, I wanted a book that was, was um, talking to some powerful human themes and that it was doing it in a way that was careful and deliberate and rigorous on the page, mm -hmm. but that was also sonically connected. Mm -hmm. um, my publisher wanted a longer book than one normally does with a book of poems. It's, it's about 120 some yeah. odd pages of poetry. I noticed that too. And, and poetry books are usually about 70. And so I have to ask myself, what's my strategy for organizing this? And one conventional approach is you might make chapters or you mm -hmm. might group related poems mm -hmm. related thematically or formally or something like that. And I decided I wanted to do something different, which was going to honor the spoken word roots of the piece. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I, what I thought that I would do is I try to structure the book so that it was sonically connected from beginning to end. And that while the themes varied, you could pick up different themes as you went through it and the forms of the individual poems varied that you could literally read this book end to end as a performance. Mm -hmm. And I kind of had in mind as I shaped it, well, how do I go about doing this? And I got this idea, which turned out to work pretty well. I, I um, love the way Carlos Santana solos. <laughs> and I have for decades. And what's amazing about his solos are that he keeps songs in his repertoire forever. But every time he approaches the solo, it both carries all of that history and something entirely new. And so I said, is there a way to think about shaping different versions of this book as different versions of end-to-end -end solos? Mm -hmm. And then as I refine the version I ultimately go with to kind of think about, well, if he was picking a solo for a song for a live album and he was listening to dozens of versions of that solo, how would he go about doing that? And, and then mixing it in the studio. And so I tried to make this a sustained sonic performance very much with reference to that kind of idea of a solo and, and poems that, that if you read them out loud, you could actually go from poem to poem and hear and viscerally feel a connection between them, even if they change subject matter or form. Yeah, and I think um, I, think I got that. I. I also, when I constructed my book, I also constructed it cover to cover, and I didn't put a note or anything like that, you know. And I think we all construct our books cover to cover in one way or another. Yeah, but, I think that's true, yeah. Right? But I think the habit of reading poetry and sort of opening up to anything and yes. imagining that it can stand alone, that must come from that sort of academic, some people might even say conservatism of, yeah. of the concept or the conceptual creation of a piece of poetry, right? I sure. Mean, we're talking about a book that is supposed to work together. That's right. As a composition. I think that's right. I mean, I think, I think that it's a great thing for a poem to be able to stand on its own and that at some level any poem should be able to because it's a discrete unit. Mm -hmm. But if it, if it can draw affiliation with and connection with poems around it, if it can flow from one to another, if, if we can let poems stand as illustrations or examples of a larger voice and then find a way, as you say, to think about a book that runs from cover to cover, I think we give so much more to our readers. Yeah. I mean, we're considering our readers is what we're doing in that. We're, we're, we're saying, if you sit down with my book, and you open it from the beginning, I want you to be able to put this down and come back to it and carry on Yeah. in one way or another. Exactly, and I think that's a generous way of meeting a reader. And I don't think that that diminishes at all the poetry. Um, I, the, the premise that a reader has to struggle with a poem in order for the poem to have merit, I think, is wrong. There are some poems that may require that kind of struggle because they're complex and they're layered and there's nothing on the surface that's immediately appealing. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that should be the standard. I just think that should be one case of a variety of ways one could do poetry. Yeah. Um, and I like to write poems that people can meet one at a time or follow along in a string. And if they want to unpack them analytically, they can. But if they just want to hear the sounds or connect to something emotionally, intuitively, that that's available as well in most of the pieces I write. Cool. Well, why don't you read what, what you think you want to read? <laughs> I mean, I have some stuff earmarked, but... Oh, well, yeah, pick something you'd like. I think that'd be fun. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. So how long have you been in the area? 
Well, I, I um, spent part of my coming up in San Francisco, um, but then I was back east for a long time, and I moved back here about three years ago. Oh, nice. Yeah, and I love Santa Cruz. It's, it's heaven on earth. Santa Cruz is really great. I mean, and you got a good spot right here. I like how the road ends and you're like, is it sky? Is it ocean? Oh, I know. It's just beautiful. Every, every day when I walk out in the morning and I look at that and, and then just it's walk like toward you're so lucky, right? I mean, that's how I feel about San Benito County, too. I mean, I live over by the mountains and, and when I drive to get home, I have to turn and there's orchards on either side. There's the Calaveras Fault with the water tower on top and then there's the, the mountain range that holds Fremont's Peak and I'm like, yeah. what else do I need? Oh, I know. It's so beautiful. <laughs> Um, all right, I'm going to ask you to read this poem, but I don't want you to read the bad word in the title. Okay. <laughs> so maybe leave that blank. Okay, so so the title has two parts. The first part is Punk Poets, uh -huh. and um, I will um, leave the rest of the title there. I'll tell you a little bit about it before sure. I read it. So this is an answer to Howl. Okay, and, that's what I kind of got. Yeah, it's an answer to Ginsburg's Howl, and the idea is that when I came of age at, in the late 70s and early 80s in San Francisco, mm -hmm. we were entering into a new period of conformity and conservatism. The world was really, really changing. And our response to that, because we were in a postmodern, as opposed to a modernist world, which Ginsburg was in, mm -hmm. was punk rock. And mm -hmm. we then had to realize that that gave voice to a certain kind of rage and a sense of no future and that it was a strong visceral response to what we were seeing. But it didn't necessarily offer a pragmatic path forward. <laughs> no, I would say it wouldn't. It didn't. <laughs> or maybe it did. And, and, and some, it's, in in I mean, some sense it did. I mean, Jello Biafra of the Dead Kennedys ran for mayor and he's still around doing things. And, <laughs> I mean... I <laughs> yeah, I mean, artists, right? <laughs> That's cool. So what I decided to do was write a poem that was an answer to Howl and that it would come in three parts. Okay. The first part begins as a punk rock piece set at the Mabuhay Gardens, which was the great punk club in San Francisco, at a Dead Kennedys concert in 1980. Right. And, and in the beginning, you'll hear a reference to Jello, who's Jello Biafra. And there's a guy named Ripper in the opening stanza who was the bass player for um, one of the, the seminal San Francisco punk bands called Crime. And, okay. and so it refers to them, and it's a critique of sort of the emerging conservatism that we were growing into. The second part of the poem talks about, in the world we're in now, what can you do with poetry? And Ginsburg, when he wrote Howell, wanted very much to find an original line form to break out of academic poetry. Mm -hmm. And his two great influences were William Carlos Williams and Walt Whitman. Mm -hmm. And Will Williams's great innovation was that he created short lines, very short lines, um, and, and spondaic verse, spondees are two accented syllables, mm -hmm. and he would put pairs of these together. Mm -hmm. Whitman went the other way. He wrote lines that ran off the edges of the, the page. And, <laughs> right. And, and the leaves of grass that flow along and without parameter. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and as you were talking, your hand was moving <laughs> yes. and illustrating. And that's, that's exactly it. And, and so Ginsburg decided to go more with Whitman's long lines. And yet William, William Carlos Williams wrote the introduction to the original City Lights release of Howl. And, and so both were very much present. The fascinating thing about Williams is that, that his short line sort of anticipated the way we text today, the way we write in compression, <laughs> short sound bites. And obviously he was doing it with a sense of art that was different. But it raises the question, if Ginsburg were, were writing as a young poet today, might he turn more readily toward Williams? How funny. And so the second part of the poem explores that as a premise, but from within the modernist frame. And in the final part of the poem, I sort of reject the claim that the times can demand that we follow a certain kind of poetry, because we're in a different place. And I make a kind of case for a fully rooted, alive, visceral, vital pragmatism that's rooted in us rather than in the times. 
and, and how do you take responsibility for taking care of people in the world? And how do you take responsibility for making strong poetry in a world where you can't, as I say later in the poem, serve an historical curl? So this is called Punk Poets. At round end of no corner bar, me and Ripper backs to stage, grab filthy glasses and plastic Polynesia, tilt bottom shelf, exhale and converse. Behind us, shirtless, gobbed in maggot wriggle, Jello admonishes black and stinking pogo crowd to be Republican, never thinking that one year hence, kill the poor, will find happy embrace in red states, more scared of welfare than war, and tuck sunny Ron in Washington, where healthy school lunch is six french fries, and ketchup, not rotting, is a vegetable. I remember the cop cars burning that Dan White night, but more I remember the sidewalk outside Twin Peaks corner of market home to freaks long before San Francisco urban chic. And ENG new to me, pushing and shoving, starting a riot. That's the story never told about that San Francisco. But I saw the news crews spiking rage as spilt milk, Mayor of Castro and decentered Moscone were shoved aside, TV slap at gay pride, and Twinkie excuse, Colonel of Conservative Human Rights, now running 30 years in low-tax CA, waiting for the day when limited government would metastasize. Short eyes has become short lines, frictionless. The times demand Williams, not Whitman. A pressure, constant, hard, clash, words, short, text, words, un, vowel, no, space, for, air. The times demand Williams, not Whitman. Shall we give way, capitulate? Or do it early. The times demand Williams, not Whitman. Spondy on spondy. Consonant diamonds. Bent light. Facet play. A flash. The times demand Williams, not Whitman. Is it our work now to surrender long lines? To howl no more? Clicking faster, clicking faster, clicking faster. Till letters are too much. Too much information to see. Till we pixel click our way in a vaster, faster space of small screens, isolated, but accessible. Is it our work now to surrender long lines, to turn the dirt on Alan's grave, to give less and less and send more and more and more? Is it time to drop the analog growl of John Lee singing boom, 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 howl, 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 a different kind of howl, a wolf moaning at midnight? Is it time to gate the mouth, to muzzle the grit, to join the raft of bits? Is it time? Is it time? Is it time? Is this any more a question? Can time demand? Can there be a moment on a virtual raft? A moment, not moments, not any moment, a moment. A moment to move, time justified. No, howls the clown prince in a world without foundation. Not even time, not even these times, not even this moment can announce anything. The times don't give us an historical curl. We cannot surf anymore to shore on the times. This time, it is on us. The times demand nothing, but what will we demand of ourselves? Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> that was great. Really good. A lot better in your voice than mine. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Hopefully people will pick it up and read it in theirs. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I mean, I think that the, some pieces just lend themselves to sound no matter what. I mean, that's just the way it is, but that's good. Oh, thank you. Really good. But I liked the beat when I was reading it, which is why I picked it, because the beat was so on. I mean, the beat is on for a lot of these things. I'd like you to read one of the sort of more... Um, one of the, the poems that spreads across the page a little more, like Woodshed here. Sure. Um, and talk about that. Now, I was first, let me think. I think I like, yeah, I think Woodshed. But I, I was first introduced to this kind of sort of spread out line mm -hmm. lines from um, 
the book Zong by uh, Norbezi sure. Phillips. And that's about the sort of, she took, I believe that she took some sort of very legal language and then sort of um, did poems through erasure. And then the poems themselves were enacting the, the acting of the, of her imagined, what's the word? Sorry, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Of, of her of, of the imagined trauma the, yeah. the, the reimagining of trauma because a book is about slaves being thrown off the side of a ship um, and so I, I sort of experienced the way things happen in erasure and then when I saw this I was immediately taken back to those to those visual <laughs> moments I had with her book so tell me about your process in this sort of expanding across the page sure so so what should first of all um, it refers to, to a process of learning your instrument. When, when people were learning how to play jazz and weren't that good at it yet, they were told to go behind the woodshed and blow for a couple of years. <laughs> and, and the most famous story of that is when um, um, Charlie Parker went on stage in a cutting contest and, and he blew his horn so badly that Philly Joe Jones threw a cymbal at his head. And, and so Parker went behind the woodshed for a couple of years and blew. And when he came back, he was Charlie Parker. <laughs> so, well. so part of the poem's about woodshedding, and and it's also about how different forms in art influence each other, and it's about what matters in poetry, and how is this connected to this question of influence, and so the poem begins talking about how to do with words, what Mondrian did with his painting Broadway, Boogie Woogie. And that was influenced by the piano playing of Pete Johnson, who was a wonderful Boogie Woogie piano player, wonderful stride player. And it goes on to talk about the role of a poet and it contrasts two kind of ideas. One, one is the idea of the wandering Irish poetess storyteller, the Shenicky. Mm -hmm. and, and the other is this idea that the late Nobel Prize winning poet Seamus Heaney um, talked about as poetry, as governance of the tongue, mm -hmm. which is a sort of powerful idea, but it's also an arrogant idea. Mm -hmm. And going back to what we were talking about earlier about there needing to be space in poetry and spoken word for people to bring their varied voices to the conversation one wants more room than that, and also more play and fun. And there's something playful about poetry that gets lost in the idea of governance of the tongue. And so I wanted to address that in the poem. Um, I wrote the poem in a very specific way, and it's spaced out for a reason. If you turn it on its side, it can be read as a musical score. Oh, really? And a slightly earlier version of this, um, a, a dear friend of mine and a wonderful composer, songwriter, musician, and artist Peg Simone did just that. She turned it on its side, translated it to music. Then when she heard the score, turned it into a stop motion video. And so the idea of one form influencing another and another influencing another is something I picked up in writing this. Then Peg picked it up and translated it further. And my hope is it will carry more. Okay. Um, and will you you'll send me a link to that video? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So um, here's Woodshed. And and it's it reads as somewhat choppy and that's intentional. Okay. I want to make pattern with words, a sketch in type for black and red and blinking yellow lights along Broadway that might come to life in ways the painter freezes in section. A diagram of Pete Johnson. He's pouring in straight eights from streetlights, foresees a bid to stay, to step from mind to music, or call from dust a stepper's ball, to make this graph across the page, to merge desire and score is to be a player. In the days of Shenicky, poets were players. Today, too often, we forget too much concerned with tongue governing, too little pleased with tips to lips. 
<laughs> I like that last part. Thanks. Yeah. Great. Yeah, you know, that's very that's very interesting because you always think of the, the terminology of poetry as governance of the tongue to be sort of an empowering thing. But it, in in that sense of sort of empowering, it's almost it's not necessarily empowering as much as it is like sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways. Well, it's, it sets up an argument for control. It's saying anything that other people do in the language has to come from the control of poets. And it also sets up a hierarchy of evaluation. If poetry is the governance of the tongue, then who's going to hold the government accountable? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> no, yeah, it's true. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's very interesting to think about. Um, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit. Sure. Um, so one of the things that I want to talk about, and I was talking about with Patrice today, was I want to talk about the practicality of being a poet in the world today. Mm -hmm. What is our role? What are what are our roles, if there are any defined? And how how do you feel that you? I mean, because in a capitalist society, we're supposed to somehow make money. We're supposed to make capital and move capital and be part of the system, right? And I always reject that. I mean, in in many ways, but in in many ways, I can't. I must live, I must make money to survive in this capitalist system. So where does a poet fit in? Well, I think a poet can fit in in a variety of ways. And if you really want to be a poet that's going to express yourself, you make your choice. Um, so I can speak to several of those ways. I might start off by thinking about it this way, that um, for bankers, time is money. For poets, money is time. <laughs> that's very good. <laughs> that's that's like tweetable right there. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, um, you're on Twitter, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. Yeah, and um, you know, I think that's what artists do. Artists take oftentimes very small amounts of money yeah. and they use it to buy time to make meaning to move lives yeah. and i think at the end of the day that's what poets want to do they want to make work that has meaning that moves lives and there can be many many ways in which we can do this it can be intimate amateur personal it can be private it can be on a public stage as an expression of self it can be a call to community Mm -hmm. It can be a political litany. It can be a way of teaching. It can be a mode of inspiring. There are many, many ways in which a poet can work. I think there are powerful ways that a poet can work that are unique to poetry. And in this sense, going back to our conversation about governance of the tongue, mm -hmm. I think that there is something powerful embedded in that, but perhaps in a less arrogant way. And one of the ways I like to think about it is this. If you take any field of endeavor, whatever it may be, whether it's farming, whether it's social work, whether it's banking, whether it's physics, whatever it may be, that field has embedded in it structural metaphors. We think about how to do the work we do in our daily life. We think about the meaning we assign to it. We think about the economic value in terms of a set of structural metaphors that are common to the culture, specific to the field, and that interpenetrate different cultures or overlapping cultures. What we can do as poets is draw attention to those structural metaphors and their implications. And what we can do is we can add new structural metaphors or play with the ones that are there and appropriate them and, and, and bring them to new meaning. And, and that's something very specific that poets can do that's practical, powerful, elegant, and enduring. Great answer. Thank you. Um, I mean, I think, that, I think that that's something that I think about but never gave word, <laughs> words to. <laughs> really. Um, what's your background? You've got, you've got some... You have some really good things to say. Well, thank you. 
<laughs> so I've, I've got kind of an odd background. I feel like I'm in class right now. Like I'm taking notes. <laughs> Which is what I love about this gig is that I feel like every time I read someone's book and I interview them, I'm like, holy mother. <laughs> I have so much work to do and reading to do. <laughs> When's the test? Oh, that's funny. <laughs> But also, I mean, when I took over the show for J.P. Dancing Bear, uh, he when he handed it over to me, he said to me when we were talking, and he, he was like, you know, the thing about this is that you're going to read a lot of poetry, and you're going to talk to a lot of poets, and you're going to learn things about your work and about other people's work, and it's going to be, it's just going to open your mind. And so far, I don't know, eight weeks in. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still feeling like, what just happened? I hear you, but that's great. You're so lucky to have the opportunity to meet all these people from different walks of life. And, and yeah, and I think the most the most fulfilling part about it is that I I know that I get to pull the I get to press the button that lets other people hear them. You know. Yeah. I mean that's that's like ultimate sharing. Oh yeah. You know? So it's great. Um, I want you to read the cover poem if you don't mind. Sure. So, so just a word about this. It's called The Underwater Typewriter, and it's um, about an encounter with a selkie. And do you know what a selkie is? <laughs> no, but I immediately thought selfie. <laughs> <laughs> very, very different, but they sound similar. <laughs> Actually, the, when I tell you about a selkie, the idea of a selkie taking a selfie would be really funny. <laughs> So tell me what a selkie is. So, so, so um, in, the, in the North Sea traditions, there is a creature known as a, variously as a selkie, as a selkie. Um, it's most associated with Ireland, but it's talked about in Scotland and, and in Norway and other places as well. Um, a selkie was a creature that um, wore a seal coat and came up from the sea captured by typically a fisherman once in a very long while. And if she liked the fisherman and he liked her, she would remove her seal coat and become a woman. And the legend was that if they stayed together for seven years and true love blossomed between them, she would leave her seal coat buried and not return to the sea. But if there was doubt or a question of that, or if something went wrong, she would dig up her seal coat and return to the sea. And she's an abandoner. She's an, she's possibly an abandoner. And her time was limited to seven years. It could never be longer than that unless something transformed the relationship. Okay. And so this is about such an encounter. She found me gathering urchins in the cove at the feet of towering yellow kelp, rising quick to the surface with a stone to crack the captured quarry on my chest as I rode the pulsing swell off Point Lobos. Your whiskers are gray. You must have stories. She laughed, trailing me like a hungry gull. Tell me your tales and the ways of Big Sur while the sun still sparkles on these waters. I opened with legends of the Ohlone, told her of great grizzlies fishing the streams, of stocky square-rigged galleons carrying explorers and settlers up the coast, of families who tended the points or light, of writers of hermits of medicine men, of musicians and poets and ranchers and thieves high in the Santa Lucias. You seem to know a lot about humans, she whistled, splashing with her hind flippers. Perhaps you will write it all down for me. I turned diving deep into the kelp bed. When I reached the ocean floor, she was there, laughing gently, opening her seal coat, placing a round keyed royal typewriter in a rock cradle and canting, please begin. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. You like, you took me everywhere with that. I mean, I'm, I know Lobos so well. Um, my teacher at Gavilan College, my English teacher actually took us out there to Point Lobos uh, for a hike. It was the first hike I'd ever done in my life. I'd oh, really? Hollister, yeah, yeah. college. Yeah, I, I had a pretty rough upbringing. But 
Yeah, and she took me out there, and I mean, how can you not fall in love? It's amazing, isn't it? I love the pulsing of the water there as it comes into those fissures and the rockets and those inlets. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's mind blowing. It's mind altering, and and then I and then I discovered Jeffers, <laughs> and and then that's why I applied to University of Pittsburgh for the graduate program. Um, because Jeffers is from Allegheny County. Oh, is that right? Yeah, his father was, um, well, rumors, I, I haven't confirmed any of it, but I, I believe that he was instrumental in building, in in the process of building the Cathedral of Learning, which is the only cathedral in the world dedicated to education, um, which is would be weird because his father was a preacher. <laughs> so, but maybe it was like some kind of mix of academic, whatever. Yeah. Anyway, so I followed, so I followed That's Jeffers really cool. back. Yeah, I followed him back. I said, well, if I'm in love with Kate Lobos, yeah. I want to see where this guy came from. That's a really cool story. I love that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love, I love Jeffers. I love, I love all that stuff. But this, wow. So, so yeah, there's a lot of um, sort of Scottish. Is it Scottish and Irish or is it Irish? There's a little bit of, there's a little bit of, of, of Celtic. Celtic, sorry. Lore entwined in the book yeah yeah my, my husband's last name is Sweeney and he's from an Irish American Irish American Catholic family and so I was asking him about a lot of your tales I'm like what is this what is this and he's like I don't know look it up <laughs> how do you say it I don't know ask him tomorrow <laughs> that's really funny anyway do you have a request to open the show with oh that's a great question um well, it's kind of a sad song, but yeah, there's a there's um, a, a, a blues tune called Death Letter recorded by Sun House. And it's the entire Delta blues caught in one song. OK, it's it's ridiculous. It's extraordinary. Everyone in America should hear that song at least once. OK. Don't care uh, what you do. Yeah, it's so hard 
because I usually play something a little calm in the beginning of the show because we go from the swing show oh, okay. into Out of Our Minds. But then when I close is when I play the music I like, which is sort of international pop right now. Oh, cool. <laughs> 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 All right. And okay, so anything else you want us to cover um, about the book or about what you're working on in the world? Well, I think one of the things in the book that's kind of interesting is that it keeps coming back to the sea in various ways. There, there are sort of love poems in there that are about meeting the sea. There are stories about drownings, near drownings, shipwrecks. And um, the sea has been something that I've been engaged with my whole life. And so the book is an opportunity, among other things, to, to have us meet the sea in various encounters over time and in different ways and what does that mean as we age going from from being you know a young person sort of brave and confident in the water and feel, feeling that you're immortal to learning things about what can happen as you grow older <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, that the ocean terrifies me in some in many ways um i was tumbled out here out on this beach, actually, um, on when I was 12 years old. And after that, ooh, <laughs> I'm done with the ocean. Yeah, this beach has a, the, those big tubular waves, and they'll just smack you down if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't. Um, will you read To the Waves? Sure. <laughs> so, so this poem is set um, in North County, San Diego. Okay. And it is about coming back for a walk at sunset um, along the seashore at Torrey Pines. And I nearly drowned at Torrey Pines a couple of years before I, I wrote this poem. I was out there with my then girlfriend in the winter and there was no one on the beach. And I went out body surfing and I was a lifeguard when I was a kid and I'm a good swimmer and, and all of that. And I got caught in a wicked rip and a cross current at the same time. And it was such that there was no way to go and you couldn't ride it out. And every time I came up for air, I got smacked down by another wave. And so at one point I got hit in the face and swallowed a lot of water and my body temperature started dropping. And there was no one to rescue me or save me or anything like that. And so I kind of made a strategy to get back to shore and I knew that that was my only chance of living. And if I succeeded, I would live. And if I didn't, I wouldn't. And by the time I got to shore, I was so exhausted that I literally couldn't stand. I was kneeling in the shore break and just gasping for air. And then I ran up to my beach towel and lay face down on it for 45 minutes. And I had no idea how much time had gone by. And then she kind of shook me. She said, Mark, you've been lying there for 45 minutes. What happened? And oh gosh. I learned that two or three days after that, there was a young couple um, from college that were out swimming and they were both athletes and the guy in the couple drowned and the girl nearly drowned and a, a lifeguard who had been driving by just happened to be driving by saw them 
and went out and he was able to rescue her and, and call for help. And he pulled her out unconscious. He himself suffered hypothermia and had to be treated at the hospital. And um, I had survived basically because I had some smarts and because I was lucky. And so this was about coming back there um, in the winter, walking along the beach and, and having, of course, to take one more dive in and, and to meet what had happened again. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So it's called To the Waves. Okay. I am now blood brother to the waves. So they told me when we met at sunset along the wash-skimmed sand at Torrey Pines in the moment between drop and green flash, black in the curl, white on the lip, streaked, orange in the furrows, perpendicular to my walking watch, as I remember the riptide and the sucking undertow, when waves were not enough to carry me, broken spitting, dropping on my head, filling my gasping mouth and gut with brine, until I stopped calling for help and swam as a wave of my own making, a surge, a surge atop the churn, a rise over the relentless pull down this shallow slope to where the shelf ended and deep water blacked my eyes, ached my head and begged me drop into its quiet eternal current, an easy slowing, a welcome blanket, a matching of temperature, mine and hers. I saw the desperation in her eyes, the fear that she would fail to bring me down, that I would hold my heat against her suck, releasing it into my arms and legs each time I came up and swam waves cushion, penetrating water, light, reaching for final shore break and beyond to land. Showing this desperation was her gift. Although I might get you, I don't have you. We both know that now, she said with a sigh then pulled my legs down into weed and pulp and water so cold I lost all control of muscle, chest, and even my breathing. But that was for a moment, and she knew that on the rising wave I would be hard and fast, driving past the point of carry, and when I came to swim beyond the waves, they called me Blood Brother, and I left her, kneeling in the break, staggering to shore. You're listening to KKUP Cupertino. This is Out of Our Minds, the poetry radio show, every Wednesday night from 8 to 9 p.m. Tonight's guest was Mark Zegans, the author of The Underwater Typewriter out of Pelicanesis Press. Um, so if you like what you're listening to, you like what you hear, um, you should all know that KKUP runs on listener support. That means you, you know, it, it we don't, none of the, we don't get paid. <laughs> I don't, I don't get paid to drive out and visit Mark Zegans in Santa Cruz. I do it because, well, one, I'm unemployed, so yeah, I have time. Um, but two, because I feel like it's super important that poetry be heard out loud. I think it's super important that poetry continue to be part of the American tradition and I think that talking to poets one-on-one -on -one in their house or at their favorite coffee shop or here in the studio, I don't know, it's such an honor. And that's what we're doing here. So if you like it, please, please become a supporter, become a member today. You can do that on kkup.org. Um, even if you're listening in from New York, I know some people are listening from the other side of the country and some people are listening from New Zealand and, and, and England and so, yeah, become a member. I mean, this is worldwide now that we've got streaming, and it's worldwide. So, um, so yeah. So, anyway, you're listening to Mark Zegans, author of Underwater Typewriter. I am Rochelle Escamilla, a.k.a. Poetita. This is Out of Our Minds, every Wednesday night, 8 to 9 p.m. on 91.5. And the next song, I'm going to play a song out. And then next up is Joe Soja with the Ethnic Connection. And to end the show tonight, I'm going to take another request um, by Mark's son, and this song is called um, ABCs by Canaan. <laughs> yeah. Come. 
times I'm noble. 